One of the things that I find beneficial about doing the behind-the-scenes work that I do in order to try and figure out you know, everything I can about the construction of these you know, shows and episodes and movies and games and books is it gives me a little bit different perspective. For example, if I had just watched this episode and hadn't done any research on it at all, I would have told you, oh, all right, here we go, guys. Here's another interesting episode that is effectively ruined by the forced inclusion of a Threat of the Week plot. Because, I don't know if you're watching this episode with me or not. You totally should, if you're not. But, because ds is a good show, you should watch it. But it's like, here's this stuff about Dax and Arjun. And here's this stuff about Quark. And here's this stuff with, like... You know, it, it, it's all this character stuff, right? There's a little Vol subplot, and there's the expectation subplot, and the, the testing subplot, and then, oh, by the way, there's a universe, and it's going to destroy us if we don't destroy it. And then we go back to the interesting stuff. And then, oh, by the way, there's a universe. It's getting worse, and now there's life on it. And then it goes back to the interesting stuff. You know, it, I'm going to talk about the proto-universe first, because that was the original plot of the episode. Just the proto-universe stuff. Now, I'm not going to deny that there's an interesting idea there. It's not really the threat that is actually the idea. It's instead the dilemma. How do you decide whether to kill yourself or the other side with no malice? They do not hate you. They are not evil. You do not hate them. You are not evil. However, the dilemma is one of you gets to live and one of you gets to die. How do you pick that? Now, that is a very interesting dilemma and can say a lot about what kind of a person is the one who answers the question. There's a lot that could be uh, discussed about that. People have been discussing the ethics and morality of that for most of human history, for God's sakes. You know, if you actually really start digging into the psychology or the philosophy of it, it ultimately, in my opinion, if I was to be so bold, I would say it boils down to two generalized concepts. Either you believe that there is a more or less ineffable concept that is more important than the fundamental, or you believe in the tactile fundamental reality more than anything else. In other words, do you believe in the intangible or the tangible as being more important than the other? Because the tangible side says you should kill the others. Your continued existence is, tangibly, something that matters to someone who believes in the tangible side of things being more relevant, right? However, if you believe more in the intangible thing than doing the right thing, which would be not committing mass murder, and therefore accepting your own death in instead, would be the right thing. And you can see how these are two completely diametrically opposed views. Now... <clears throat> Just to make my point here, this proto-universe thing doesn't even really show up until the 24-minute mark of this episode. And it basically has like three cameos, and otherwise is effectively not even a part of the episode. There's two things about it that I find interesting. First, Kira is the only one who seems to be on the tactile, tangible reality side of the equation. At no point in time does she even say anything other than, you know, it's, look, this, isn't, this is horrible, but we've got to do this. On the one hand, that makes perfect sense. This is Kira. 
she has a lot of a survivalist mentality. And survivalism as a concept does tend to, tend to lean more towards you do what you have to to survive, hence the thing. You know, the tangible uh, reality is what matters more than the intangible reality, right? And her leaning on that makes sense to me, but it's not how I would have written her, personally. I would have looked at Kira, and I would have said that despite what she has been through, given that she is a very spiritual person, that she does believe strongly in her own particular belief system, and this will be even more established in later episodes, it's worth noting, I would say Kira would look at this and be torn. I would have her be the one character who can't decide. As the other characters are debating what do we do or how do we do it, Kira is the one who just kind of stays silent, and whenever it's brought up, she just kind of... There's this frustration there, because she can't choose. The two parts of her life are tearing her in quite literally opposite directions. And I think that would have been a more interesting take on that. Now, Odo's side of things is very interesting, especially since, uh, for a little bit of historical context, the Victory is Life Gamma Quadrant expansion for Star Trek Online just came out this week, the week I am recording this. So, you know, a little bit in advance of when you're watching this. And in that, Odo made a difficult call, basically sacrificed lives in order to accomplish a greater good. This isn't really a spoiler. You know, no context, and you've probably already played it by then anyways, and blah, blah, blah. But I point that out because here, Odo is on the exact opposite side of that concept. I don't step on ants, Major. Pretty much says all that needs to be said about that. And I do like the idea that Odo would land so hard on that side of the debate. Because for Odo, tangible reality isn't something that's ever been a strong concern for him. Outside of a few little party tricks, he's never had to really scratch or scrape or... Well, to be blunt, he's never really been desperate. All that has ever mattered to him are intangible things. Things like social dynamics, things like order, things like justice. These are all intangible concepts, right? These are the things that matter to him. And thus, when confronted with this dilemma, it makes perfect sense he'd land on that side of it. Um, unfortunately, no one else really weighs in on this. Like, Odo's on the intangible, Kira's on the tangible, everyone else is just kind of there. Like, everyone else is just discussing their options. And I think, it, in part, part of the problem there is because it's not the plot of the episode. It's a C-plot of the episode. It's arguably less important than the Vols. Seriously. Now, there is a thematic connection between the proto-universe and the Vols, because the Vols are just living here, right? And yet, they have no problem as looking at them in pests and exterminating them, because they are causing them damage. Us versus them. There's no malice on behalf of the Vols. And in fact, if you're paying attention, Cisco even starts off saying, you know, phasers on stun. I want them alive. And later on, he withdraws that statement. And they even have this long-term plan, which will take months to implement, to slowly eradicate the voles from the station. Side note, can't they just call in the next Federation ship and say, could you scan for every vole and then beam it off into space? Like, isn't that a thing we could do? Anyways. <clears throat> Um, I know, I know, there's probably some that are hiding places where they can't scan or whatever. Fine, whatever. Anywho. <clears throat> but then that brings me to the real reason why the proto-universe thing doesn't matter in this episode. There's a otherwise interesting scene where Cisco is debating the dilemma. You know, give me one hour. And he flat out says, I have one hour to decide the fate of, of all of this, and I have no idea what to do. My mind keeps going back to the Borg and their indifferent extermination. First of all, that line is actually interesting to me. 
It means that to me, Cisco never understood the Borg. Now, I don't blame him. There's no like, oh, he's an idiot. No, of course he doesn't understand the Borg. You know what he knows the Borg as? The people who killed his wife and nearly took his son from him. Basically destroyed his life. Of Why would he want to be understanding about that? But B, and more importantly, um, it meant to me that he sees what he's doing as a sort of, what, what the choice that is before him as the kind of thing that might be, shall we say, a dance in the pale moonlight, if you catch what I mean here, with regards to the kind of dilemma. Do I, do I commit a wrong to accomplish a right, basically? Now, here's the thing. It's a nice scene. Then it cuts to a far more interesting scene between Dax and Arjun, far towards the end of their particular... In fact, basically, it is effectively the final scene between the two of them, as far as their story arc goes. There's some cleanup and finale after that, but that is functionally the end of their the two's dynamic, is that scene. Then Cisco shows him and says, All right, we're taking it back. <laughs> what? That was never even really an option. Like, that was just... It's just all of a sudden, okay, I've decided we're going to go ahead and take him back through the wormhole, and everything's going to be cool forever. And that's it. The big moral dilemma is effectively jettisoned out the window because we need to move on to other more important stuff. I guess. I want to give a small side note here. How many of you guys have seen Enterprise? I have, obviously. Although I've only watched all of Enterprise once. Uh, I have watched season three and four multiple times, because I legitimately enjoy Enterprise season three and four. And that will be an interesting topic when we finally get to covering Enterprise on this show. But I bring that up because there's an episode that I'm really fond of. It's actually a trilogy, but the, the one I mean right now is the episode The Forgotten. This was in season three, part of the Zindi arc. In that episode... There is a a small, almost minuscule damage that's been done to the ship. It's a little just... And we see it pretty early on in the episode. And because it goes unnoticed for so long, it gets worse. The damage becomes worse and worse and worse until it's this overwhelming gout of flame and they, can, they, have, to, they have an emergency situation to try and deal with it, right? Now, the reason I bring that up is... That right there, and I can't believe I'm praising Enterprise over Deep Space Nine, but episode to episode, right? That right there is how you do a threat of the week plot and make it matter. Because the threat of the week isn't there to be the threat at that point. I mean, we're satisfying the requirement. We've checked off the checkbox, but it's a direct thematic parallel to the predominant point of that episode, and that is Tucker. That little geyser is basically all of Tucker's pain and hardship and heartache about the loss of his sister, about his guilt over how he feels, and about the emotional baggage that is just crushing him. And nobody sees it except to Paul. Of course, to Paul, is, of all people, is the one who notices. But nobody sees it, and it just gets worse and worse and worse until it just erupts, and he just can't take it anymore. He, he breaks down crying. Oh, God, it's, it's hit me because it's a powerful scene. He just starts sobbing, and T'Pol actually embraces him because she understands what he's going through and wants to help him through it. It's a great episode. By contrast, the proto-universe has nothing to do with anything. 
It has at best a vague connection to the Vols, which is never really expressed. It has absolutely nothing to do with the main plot of the episode, which is the plot between Arjun and Dax. Now, Again, this is because this episode had a massive rewrite. The original point of the episode was all about the proto-universe, and everything else was secondary or not even present, and it was restructured to do the complete opposite. But i got to be honest, if you're doing that kind of restructuring, eject the proto-universe. Like, <laughs> I, I, of all people, am one of those people who espouses the idea of a day-in-the-life episodes. I think those are actually... It, I legitimately believe that it is critical to have day-in-the-life episodes in a recurring TV show, especially one that includes aspects of, and elements of danger, like a Star Trek show. you got to have those breather episodes. you got to have those character development episodes. you got to have the episode that's like Data's Day, you know? You have to have family. Uh, you have to have... Oh, God, I suddenly can't think of a Voyager example. I know there's some. There's some good ones, too. Like, you got to have those breather episodes to help really make it work. Otherwise, it, it just starts to lose its impact. So, if you're restructuring this, just get rid of the proto-universe. Have them just be flying out. They do some scans, and they fly back. And then later on, they go for another trip. The structure of the episode is almost 100% unchanged, unchanged by ejecting the proto-universe. All that's changed is the absence of three significant scenes, which would have to be replaced with something. That's it. <sighs> Anyways, I'm sorry. I actually don't have much to say about the actual main plot of the episode, because it's good, but it also is stuff that I've already talked about. It's the trill. It's the idea of what's going on with the trill, right? The trill's... Uh, I, I call it the aristocracy. I, I don't mean that's necessarily 100% true. That's more of a headcanon theory. But that's how I usually view the way the Trill approach the symbiotes, you know, the, the upper crust, the people who this is, this is what you aspire towards. And this is not the first time we've covered this. In fact, this isn't even the second time we've covered this. It is nice to flesh them out more. That's not a complaint. It's just I don't have much else to add to the equation. Um, I do like the bit where you know, I really wanted my children to become a, you know, a joined. It was so important to me. But then my daughter got married. That's a, it's a quiet little thing, but that one phrase just says so much about the ideas of what would completely disqualify you from joining. In fact, there's actually a statement that's made, I believe we've already passed that point, where they say, joined are, are officially, you know, on record, uh, not restricted, but uh, discouraged from interacting with people from previous hosts. Because they find that there's just issues and blah, blah, blah. And Jadzia Dax is one who basically violated this one with Cisco. And, and I think that was a good thing, consequently. And, well, <clears throat> we'll get there when we get there. I also like the, there's a line that Jadzia Dax has, which is, it, it just sets my, my world builder instincts aflame. She talks about how each... You know, I, I just don't see what he adds to the program. I don't see what he adds to the symbiote. Each person has to add, and I forget how she, I should have written this down, but she says something along the lines of, each person has to add something new to the symbiote. Now that right there is dangerous thinking. That is basically the same concept behind, we should always make more money than we have previously made. Now, that is, in other words, a form of inflation. 
if you, this is actually kind of inverse inflation, actually. The value, relative value of symbiote hosts, if they do follow through this policy throughout the centuries, will eventually reach the point where the value is so high, no one is going to meet up to those standards. Who is, who is going to exist that's going to add anything new to someone who's already been through ten generations, right? I mean, Jadzia's already been through seven, I think, at this point in time. And she's, you know... She's already at the point where it's like, what else do we have to add to this? I feel that's such a dangerous precedence. And again, the world builder in me looks at that and kind of nods, because that's a lie. At least that's what I presume. When I look at that, I presume that is a straight-up, flat-out lie, designed to try and keep an air of... I call it a diamond industry. Like, I've got a Lorium's page. It's on my website. It's a diamond industry. In other words, they're not actually that valuable. They're not actually that rare. But we pretend they are. We add a... What's the word? A... Oh, God. Uh, I can't think of it. Like, a, a degree of prestige. Artificially generated prestige to the entire thing. That... Uh, infers that, oh, well, only the best of the best could ever accept this program. Like, my mind is just alight with story ideas of the kind of politics that would involve, right? Imagine how much influence the symbiotes have on the program and on each other. Like, imagine the kind of symbiotes who would want to do multi-lifetime political dealings and IOUs and we work togethers against this other guy or girl or whatever, however you want to think of the gender at that point, Right? Like, there's so many possibilities there. And this episode basically does nothing to discourage any of those. It doesn't really analyze them that much. But it does bring it up. I also like, so by more or less coincidence, because I was doing some other work at the time, I ended up watching this episode basically twice. It was more like two and a half times through. And I noticed the second time through, although I'd already caught this admittedly, but it's really obvious how everything he says is basically nothing but a smokescreen. Right up until he, he rants and rages at her, he is saying almost nothing but what he expects she wants to hear. And I find it interesting, because Terry Farrell herself has said that when she was portraying, the way she was portraying Dax in the early parts of the episode is deliberately provoking him to see what his reaction would be. Which, I'll admit, I kind of tend to do the same thing all the time in my everyday life. We were, I was actually talking to my sister about that just today. She knows me so, so well that I did something and she immediately knew what I was asking, even though I didn't say a word. <laughs> and then we had to explain that to my niece because she was like, what? How'd you know what he was asking? It was actually very cute. Anyways, but um, I totally get that mentality. And I do think Terry Farrell does a very good job of portraying that. The person who is deliberately presenting something in order to interrogate effectively. Now, I also want to say that this is probably a good look at Jadzia Dax. And I stress the way I phrase that. There's Jadzia, there's Dax, there's Jadzia Dax. Now, I usually refer to her as Dax, uh, but that's technically inaccurate because Dax is a separate entity. So, to be clear... Usually when I say Dax, I mean Jadzia Dax, just to line that up. She actually refers to Jadzia 
several times in a very natural and third-person way, as if she is no longer that person. And I like that because she isn't. In basically every way, she is no longer Jadzia. She is now Jadzia Dax. That's the nature of the symbiote thing. We've talked, talked about this before. And it makes me wonder if, and, and I know this sounds like a really horrible thing, but if in a way Jadzia is effectively gone. I hesitate to use the word dead, but that is functionally what I mean here. That the original person is erased, erased is the wrong word, so significantly changed that they cease to exist. Jadzia Dax is still going, but Jadzia is gone. Make sense? And it brings to mind how much, how many of the symbiotes are okay with that, and in fact, think of that as a good thing, like as in a legitimately good thing. In other words, this feels like a little bit of alien morality, you know, orange versus blue morality. And I kind of like that. The only final thing I have to say about this episode uh, is, there, is that Quark is amazing. <laughs> there is this really great scene. I just talked about this last episode. This is another good example of uh, flavor rather than padding. There's this bit where Quark comes in and, oh my god, there's a vault! It doesn't have anything to do with anything. Like, it's basically a non-issue. It's just there for, for the actors to play off each other. And Quark, Armin Shimmerman is great because O'Brien's like, oh yeah, we've got this thing. And, <laughs> and of course, O'Brien's like, Whoa. Quark? Quark? Huh? <laughs> I mean, I have to admit, O'Brien's probably pretty out of it if he didn't realize that Quark's ears would be affected by that. But it's a good enough scene that I'm willing to let it go. <laughs> oh yeah, one last bit. Um, the gentleman, the, the, the Klingon opera guy, right, with the accordion and his Klingon restaurant. This is his last appearance in the show, sadly. Um, I just wanted to point out, forgive me for referencing it yet again, but uh, he's actually in, in the new the newly rendered Deep Space Nine over in Star Trek Online, and I think that's awesome. I don't have anything else to add. I just wanted to point that little tidbit out for anybody who hasn't caught it. I hope you've enjoyed my weird discussion on this weird episode. I'll see you guys next time.